Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Welcome to the Documentary in One. Journalists Peter Taylor from Yorkshire and Fergal Keane from Cork both have been awarded OBEs by Queen Elizabeth for their services to journalism. However, that's not all they share in common. Because in the 1970s and 80s, both Peter and Fergal reported extensively from Northern Ireland as the troubles raged. Now, all these years later, they're returning to Northern Ireland to share their personal experiences of reporting from there. This is Shared Troubles. At last. <laughs> I know the face. <laughs> I know the voice. Peter Taylor, as I live and breathe. <laughs> Peter Taylor, reporter from the Republic of Yorkshire. As a Brit, may I welcome you, Thank an you Irishman, much. to Belfast. <laughs> Still your territory. <laughs> For how long? <laughs> For how long, exactly. It's lovely to see you. It's all our territory. Fergal Keane, journalist from Cork in the Irish Republic. When were you last here? I was last here, I took my son, Daniel, to see Belfast about two months ago. It was his first time here. And uh, I took him all around the city. The tour? Uh, yeah. yeah. As somebody who's sort of born in Hong Kong, grew up in London, and to suddenly bring him in here. It was a great way of me seeing just how strange the place still is. So you must be pretty whacked because you got in late last night didn't you? Yeah, or early uh, this morning? Yeah. I did. The baggage I brought to Northern Ireland, my first visit in 1972 to cover Bloody Sunday, was very small because I thought I was going to be here overnight and I was here for actually three nights. But I never thought I would need the baggage of nearly Half a century. That was the, that was the difference. But the the baggage that I brought, the sort of personal family baggage, was very light, and there was nothing in the baggage to suggest any knowledge, experience, interest in what was happening in this far corner of the United Kingdom. Mm. My baggage was very mixed. So I came here because it was. The idea to me, as a as a young journalist, that there was a part of the island on which I lived which was at war, was extraordinary. Extraordinary because nobody else around me that I could see seemed very preoccupied by that in the south. It was more of a low rumble in the background, those newspaper headlines or radio news stories, but it didn't impact on us. And I think there was a, a fairly determined refusal to allow it to impact. So this is the Holy Land? This is the Holy Land where I first lived when I came to Belfast. I think my place is... Do you see where the two dormer windows are open up there? At the yes. top of that house there. And um, So this is your... That was, was this? Where you lived? Yeah, this is where I lived. I had a room at the top floor. It was, I was staying with a friend. I'm surprised um, there isn't a blue plaque on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Fur was here. It was chiselled off and sold <laughs> for scrap. 
And um, so, yeah, I, was, I, I can remember that first weekend lying on the bed. It was a hot weekend, early marching season. And the two sounds of the drums of the bands rehearsing on the Ormore Road mm-hmm. and the army helicopter. And I thought to myself, this is far from Cork, you know. Like any new arrival, I was struck by the strangeness of everything around me. The checkpoints, the armoured Land Rovers, the soldiers' faces, young and suspicious, and the hourly news bulletins with their toll of destruction and frequent death. Here was a country rooted firmly in its own place and time, and that was light years from the easy-going south I'd left behind. The other thing that I, I remember too from those first weeks is just how sound would carry across the city. So you could have, and you'll be well familiar with this, a bomb will go off in West Belfast, you're in South Belfast and you'll hear it, and the smallness of the place, just how intimate and claustrophobic the city was. I mean, in, the, in the early 70s, when I first started covering the conflict, we were staying at the Europa, which is basically the watering hole for all the world's press. You go to bed and then you hear, you know, the bomb go off or bombs go off and then you'd leave the hotel and you'd sort of shake yourself awake and go to the site of what had happened and, and you'd hear, you know, shooting. And it was every, every night occurrence, every day occurrence. It was just normality. And for, you know, an Englishman, a Brit coming over here, it was just, just bizarre. You know? Did you consider it a war? I, I, didn't, I didn't then. I do now, looking back. What did those men's deaths achieve? Have been actually been in the car, or were there bystanders who were actually killed as well? The leafy pathway behind the model school in Ballysillan, North Belfast, where John O'Neill was murdered on the 15th of March, 1986. A country lane in North Belfast. Narrow, leafy, like country lanes all over these islands. But it was here that um, the sectarian murder took place, which really brought home to me the viciousness uh, of this conflict. There was a 25 year old Catholic, a guy called John O'Neill, who had been working in the centre of Belfast. He was a painter and he'd gone for drinks with some friends afterwards and somehow ended up drinking in a Protestant club, social club here in Ballysillan. And he came here and he was taken outside, beaten to death, and his body was dumped in a stream just right beside where we're standing now. And I went to interview his father because I was a southerner. I felt that we had no idea. I'd come up here to live, but I felt that we had no idea in the south of what this was doing to families, of what the conflict could do to families. Uh, and even though this was 85, you know, the conflict had erupted in 1969, but I still felt we were utterly detached from it. And so I went and interviewed his father, and he was he had the same red hair as his son. It was John O'Neill Sr. The country's in turmoil. The more people are murdered, the more heartache there is, the more friction. And if this doesn't stop... God knows where it'll end. And I don't know, Peter, you must have had that experience of of dealing with people, particularly the victims of sectarian murder, who look at you and say, my son wasn't involved in anything. You know, he was picked because of his religion. But that's the nature of sectarian murder, isn't it? 
you know, I've interviewed loyalist killers and asked them about why they killed an innocent Catholic. And they simply said, because he was a Catholic. How did you shoot him? Shot him. Did you think about it before you pulled the trigger? Nope. Any hesitation in pulling the trigger? Nope. Did you say anything to him before you kill him? No, it wasn't. It was just, it was quick and it was dirty. There was a sort of savage, awful, logic, dreadful logic to it. But when you were interviewing the father, I'm sure you, like me, having done such interviews, you live the interview, don't you? You, you feel it. You, you know, I still do. You, you, you feel, and you I've, share the pain. Mm, you know. I have interviewed so many victims of violence yeah. in the years since. And yet he stays with me because it was my first time. It was the first time I'd ever sat down with somebody who'd lost somebody through, through that kind of and violence. And that brings it home, doesn't it? Oh. And he was this stillness in the room and just listening to him describe. And he had come down here to try and speak to his son. The body was gone, but he felt the presence of his son. He wanted to be where his son had died. And um, he'd, he'd come and it was raining. This sticks in my head all these years later. When I do, or when I've done very similar interviews, they are draining. And at the same time, I'm thinking, should I really be putting mm. this person who is so painfully sharing his or her experience with me, should I be putting them through it? And you think afterwards, should I have done it? But the reason you do it, why I do it, why you, know, you do it, I assume... It was just to bring home to people the reality, the human reality. And in the course of doing, you know, the kind of interviews that you've just described and I've done over the years, you actually feel it and it takes it out of you. Oh, doesn't it, does, it? it sure does. Afterwards, you're drained. And when you say, after the interview, you know, thank you, you know, th what do you say? You know, thank you for talking to me. Words can't explain. They can't, but you, I felt you kind of walk out of there half ashamed for the state that somebody's in as a consequence yes. of having spoken Which to you. Which you have got them to share yeah. with you and therefore you know, your audience. But, but it is the history. It is, it is the, the telling of what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Mrs. Reeby, how do you now see the future? I don't know how I'm going to carry on in that house where my two sons were murdered. I don't know how I'll bring my poor son home out of the hospital and bring him into that room where he was shot and where he had to tramp over the dead body of his brother to make out on his hands and knees. I don't know how I'm going to bring him back into it. That's how I feel. When you think now of, of, of what happened to your son, do you feel bitter? Yeah. I think I always will be bitter. I, they tell you it's not right to be bitter, but just... Well, you can't help it. I mean, how can any person, any normal person, not be better? They've taken away. All I had. My dearest honey at our home tonight... What can I answer Francis and we Tom when they ask for Daddy? I wipe the blood from our front door with lukewarm water and fairy liquid. Your gore I swabbed, darling, as you would have done, my true one. 
sweet love, good father, I thought so clever you might dupe all danger. I can hear their footsteps still, and the doorbell. You lowered the paper in our sun-filled kitchen and caught your coat up on your finger as usual, and drained your coffee and sauntered the hall idly to answer. Like a stick in a biscuit tin, guns started. My world caved in. Well, I was coming down the road past the chapel in the car, and just the smoke went up, car, and just knew it was a bomb. And there's a lot of commotion. The police was all about the place as the marathon was on, half marathon tonight in Lisbon. And the police were on right away. But I seen another body lying at the corner that the person was dead. Was the car actually moving when the bomb exploded? It had come to a stop when I seen it. Just come to a stop. So the car could actually have been carrying a bomb? It could have been, yes. There's people in the car when I seen it. And they looked dead to me and all. That was the scene that you saw? Yes, this is the scene I saw, yes. The square in Lisburn outside Belfast where six soldiers were murdered by the IRA in a bombing on the 15th of June, 1988. I was coming with my crew from covering something in South Armagh, coming up the motorway and we got a, a message, divert to Lisburn, there'd been a bombing. And we drove in here to the square. And uh, it's quite a long time ago now, but I remember just devastation. They'd planted a bomb under a van being used by British soldiers who were taking part in the fun run. Six of them were killed. It was one of these bombs which was designed to go straight up through this ferocious explosion. And the bystanders were killed. There was a, an 80-year-old man, a two-year-old kid were among those, uh, those injured. But I'm trying to remember exactly where in the square the bomb went off. And here's the thing. I am reluctant with my accent in this largely Protestant town to ask them where did the bomb go off should I ask them Would in you? my British well, why am I doing that it's interesting do you know where there is there a plaque a memorial yeah, plaque yes, whereabouts is it there. see if you just go over there there's a wee entry takes you out on the road and just walk up there I was born in London I worked for the BBC British establishment my family were Irish nationalists, they took part in the revolution against British rule, but in the civil war, they took the free state side. So it's, you know, all of our family, our, our past is complex, and I'm okay with that. I'm absolutely comfortable with the different influences and traditions that go to make my own, my own consciousness. My only obligation really is to tell what I see and to try and explain it and understand it. And, and to do that from a sort of independent vantage point is not easy. And, of course, we will be criticised by those who say, but you can't have an independent vantage point given your history, given you know, my history as an Englishman. But I think, I think we, you know, we, we, we endeavour to overcome that. And I like to think that you know, what we do and what we have done is to maintain that sort of independent objectivity Sergeant Winkler, Corporal Metcalf, Lance Corporal Green, Lance Corporal Lambie, Lance Corporal Patterson, Signalman, Clavey, and flowers, fresh flowers here, recently put because it's just a few days ago, the anniversary, 
Lance Corporal W. Patterson with love from Mum, Dad and Julie. Love's last gift remembrance. 31 years old. To think that they'd started out on a fun run. That's the supreme irony, isn't it? It was the fun run and ended in carnage, which you saw. You were were here. You see this and, of course, you remember the dead are dead forever. And you can talk politics, you can talk history, but the unalterable fact of this, facts of this, are the dead. Did it seem as if all the people um, whom you saw uh, killed had been actually been in the car or were there bystanders who were actually killed as well? I would have said they were in the, in the, the van because they were up in that direction of the, the van, probably just blown out of the van. So you arrived here when the scene, the carnage, was still fresh. How did that I just wiped it out of my mind. It's interesting. Did you? Yeah. I'm struggling to remember it. I, I usually have a pretty good kind of forensic memory of, of these things. It was 1988. It would have been one of the first, probably the first scene of mass atrocity that I'd come across. So I'd have covered individual killings, but this was the first time where it would have been a group of people killed, blown to pieces in a in a terrible um, bombing. But the detail is gone, and that tells its own story. It's something I block out. And you've seen far more dead bodies than I've ever seen. Given Since then, yeah, Rwanda. You know. Middle East, Balkans, but this particular one is gone. How do you explain that? Partly, perhaps because you're Irish. Yeah. Although they're British soldiers. But it happened in my place, in my country, it happened on your in my island. island. Yeah. And I don't. When I say my country, I never mean it in a in a nationalist sense because that's not who I am. You know, James Joyce. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion, I will try to fly by those nets. And I've always seen those things as a net, as a prison to try and hold you in. But that's a different thing when I talk about feeling the sorrow for what is done on this island that we share, what we've done to each other, what my grandparents were involved in. They were members of the IRA fighting in the South. Then they were involved in a brutal civil war against their neighbours, against old friends. And it's all part of that history, the weight of that history that we live with on the island. One of the great myths in the Republic growing up was that what happened between 1919 and 1923, the War of Independence and Civil War in the South, had absolutely nothing to do with what was going on in Northern Ireland now. And the IRA, the good old IRA of my grandparents' generation, oh, they were different now. It was, you know, that was a good, clean fight compared to the what the provosts were doing in the north, which, of course, was nonsense. It was anything but. Yeah, it was complete nonsense. Just reading what, um, you've, what you've written about that critical period in your country's, your tradition's history, the War of Independence to get the Brits out, the civil war that was the fruit of that fight, bears all the echoes of what we have been through, what we have both lived through and covered today. But memory tends to cleanse that war because to live with that war, you have to cleanse the memory, in particular if you happen to be on the side of those who were involved in the war, and your own family in particular. Your, your grandparents' relatives, close friends, and your grandparents themselves were involved in murder, were members of the IRA, were involved in the, you know, mm. the execution, the murder of informers, all those echoes which are you know, 
relevant today and echo loudly today were there and we, people tend to forget it because, which is why I you, think because my, they have yeah. to forget it and I think my preoccupation as a journalist here in the north and where I've gone subsequently whether that's you know Rwanda, the Balkans, the Middle East is to describe war as it is not to romanticise not to mythologise because I grew up with too much mythology. This struggle here, people are now attempting to mythologise and narrativise in, in a romantic and glorious fashion. I'm sorry, it wasn't. It never is. There is no way that you pump a high-velocity bullet into a man's brain and see anything but gore, mess and waste. Derry, State one, take one. Mr Chapman. You're a military man. Yes. What... Was your reaction to what you saw? My, the my, my, do? my, my first reaction was one of horror uh, that such a dastardly action could be done, because dastardly is an understatement to my mind uh, for it. It was ap- completely uncalled for. They immediately got down into firing positions and fired indiscriminately into the fleeing crowd who, who were running past my house. The bloody Sunday memorial in the bogside in Derry, Londonderry in memory of those who were shot dead on that awful day, it says at the bottom, who were murdered by British paratroopers on Bloody Sunday, the 30th of January, 1972. And this was my introduction to Ireland. I'd never been to Ireland before. I arrived here in Derry, or Londonderry, on the night of Bloody Sunday, after the, after the shooting. Who were you working for? I was working for... Thames Television at the time for the This Week programme, not the, not the BBC. And I felt guilty because it appeared that you know, my soldiers, being a Brit, had shot dead in cold blood 13 innocent civil rights marchers. And I also felt guilty because I knew nothing about Ireland, knew nothing about the conflict and thought I'd better find out. You saw them fire. I actually saw them firing from the, this, from the flats over there and from this uh, court, just this corner here of, my, of my, uh, the entrance to my house. That was my beginning. That was my introduction. What were you doing on Bloody Sunday? I was in my grandmother's house in Cork, watching television. I was 11 years of age. And um, it so happened that on that same weekend... My uncle, Michael, was killed in a fire in New York and the house was in turmoil. My grandmother was heartbroken and suddenly the news comes in of Bloody Sunday and we're all watching a black and white television, one TV channel at the time in the South. And this, I, I remember it because of this mix of you know, personal tragedy hitting the family and then suddenly you know, the, the impact of what happened here on Bloody Sunday in the South traumatic. So it, it was a house in chaos and in the days afterwards a country which was enraged enraged. Remember when crowds marched and burned the British Embassy in Dublin and I'll never forget we'd been quite you know we'd been witnessing the North from, from a distance we'd seen the troubles of 1969 but Bloody Sunday touched something which went way way back atavistic. Atavistic. It went back in our history and this idea of a callous, careless Britain, England, England which had sent its troops to shoot Irish people that was the feeling at the time 
and it manifested itself in the street demonstrations and there was that spike in, in very militant nationalist sentiment and then it receded and then as you got IRA atrocities piling up the old partition of the mind came back into play and so it was a, a momentary spasm it wasn't repeated again until the hunger strike where emotion flashed again but our default position was not outrage it was not solidarity with, with people here it was leave us alone we don't want that chaos here and if you look at it you, people of my age growing up in the south for the overwhelming majority of us there was no question that I would go out and do what my grandparents had done and join the IRA and lift a weapon for the cause of Irish unity if, it was far too abstract but if you had been a young Derry, person growing up in yeah, Derry different. Oh, yeah. and maybe you'd been on the march or a friend had been a on the march very different case and yeah. then 13 people were shot yeah. dead by very the different. Brits You're by f- British paratroopers would you have it's a very di- exactly I would have faced a very different choice very different choice and I can't say what I would have done I don't know now there were many people on that march of course who didn't join the IRA probably the majority didn't join the IRA it was part of your family your family your you know, but the North wasn't. That's no, what you got to no. get into your head. The North was not. But in not. terms of, resi- fought, in terms of they resistance, they fought for the ground under their feet. In terms of resistance, mm. yeah. your family, your ancestors were part of the IRA. Mm. Mine never were. There was no connection with Ireland. We never understood. I didn't come from a political family, and I think the attitude of my my father would have been at the time, you know, let the buggers sort it out. You know, nothing to do with us. But that's what makes you a great reporter here. Because you don't have a dog in the fight, except your curiosity and your humanity. Well, I do. I do have a. I do have a dog in the fight because Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, whether we like it or not, and many people don't like it, and therefore we have a responsibility. Do you feel it is, or do you feel it's Irish? Uh, I feel it's Northern Irish. (laughs) Do I feel it's part of the United Kingdom? Yes, because it is, but. Historically, do I feel it's part of the United Kingdom? It became part of the United Kingdom after partition in 1921. The reality is, the ground on which we stand is part of the United Kingdom. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the constitutional position. Does your instinct tell you? What does your instinct tell you about what this place really is and where it really belongs? My instinct tells me, and my instinct based on knowledge and experience and history is that by an accident of history or a deliberate act of history the reason why there is a problem here is that centuries ago the British crown planted settlers here in this part of the north of Ireland whose purpose was to act as a garrison to keep the Irish rebels down that's a fact of history and that's why historically there's a problem here do you feel this is part of Ireland? where we're standing now? Or is it part of the United Kingdom? I take the view that it's part of both. And that's the... the that's kind of, an evasion. No, no, it's the truth, though. It's what people here want it to be. That's consent. So do what I do, feel... What do, what so do you, I, I drive from the south. I drive from Cork to Belfast. And I think, my God, these places are different. But I'm aware of a geographical continuity, OK? I'm aware of certain cultural continuities in terms of music, of poetry, of language, right? of sports. All of these things would go to make a kind of an identity. But 
Do it's you have, Irish you... and it's British. And that's a hell of a conundrum. And that's... It's, if we're going to have a united Ireland, if we are going to have a united Ireland, and I think tend to think now it is more likely, it's much more likely than it was. I would agree with that. The big challenge for people of my background is how we fashion our republic into a place that is a home for all political persuasions here. And I'm not sure we're half the way there in terms of thinking how we do that. If you push too early, if you're nationalists and republicans and you push too early for a united Ireland through a border poll, you raise the temperature dramatically. Because it isn't going to be simply a question of did we get a 51% majority? That's not going to work. That is going to leave huge sections of the loyalist community alienated and potentially a recruiting ground for another round of conflict in this place. I would agree with that. If you look at the, the small margin of the Brexit referendum and the divisions that that exacerbated mm. and caused, that is nothing compared to... Try that to with guns, which is what it would be here. I think also the danger or the prospect of United Ireland is that it leads to the breakup of the United Kingdom because Scotland is waiting to depart. If Northern Ireland were to become part of a United Ireland, there is no longer a United Kingdom. I mean, that is the long-term danger or threat or opportunity, mm -hmm. depending on the view that you take. As far as you know, my fellow English men and women are concerned, if Ireland wishes to have... United Ireland and Northern Ireland wishes to be part of Ireland, fine, we're rid of it. And I think that, you know... Do, well, do you feel that yourself? What do you feel? I don't, I don't feel it will be rid of it. I think that the only way to create peace on this island is to have an accommodation, but it's an ideal which is difficult to realise given the baggage, the legacy of what you and I have been covering for the past nearly half century. That's what makes it difficult. Because memories die hard, memories linger, and it's the shadow of what has happened and what you know we have all done to each other. When I say we, it's you know it's the British, it's the Irish of both traditions have done to each other over this horrendous period that makes it much more difficult to reach a satisfactory accommodation between the two parts of the island and our relationship to those two parts of the island. From a hill, gunmen opened fire on their van, killing Corporal McKee outright and Lachison wounding another. was driving home along a back road when both he and the car were blown to pieces. The vehicle that had carried the five soldiers to their death. horror. Mrs Mathers was doing a job which, in normal circumstances, should be no more than routine. It cost her her life. She was standing helping a, a man to fill in a form and someone just came rushing up and just shot her through the neck. And uh, she was dead and arrival at the hospital. Joanne and Lowry Mathers had a young son, Shane. I told them that his mummy wasn't coming back because she was in heaven. And um, he thought this was a great place for her. Why would a Yorkshireman devote his life? to explaining what happened here. Because he's a Yorkshireman. No, but why? 
because I became with such sympathy and intelligence fascinated by it and drawn into it and emotionally involved in it not on any particular side but in the families that I met the people I interviewed the people I got to know you know <laughs> what the fuck you come in come on away sorry about that well, what about you? Good to see you, Eamon. Good, Good to see you. Hey. Do you know Peter? Peter Taylor? Hi, hey, Peter. Yeah. yeah, well, I know of him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice to meet you. This man has done such work for peace in this town. He's done great work. You really have. Well, thank you. For Holy well trust. Yes. How do we know each other, you children? We've been doing a lot of things, don't we? Yeah, Eamon's got me over to do stuff to talk about truth and reconciliation. About, and yeah, South Africa. Yeah. Uh, to talk about... About and peace, I guess. About peace about and peace. about uh, that's your building relationships your and about how our own our own background determines so much about how we are about the world. Are you from Derry? Yeah. I think this man is a fantastic man. I'll stop. And, and, and what has <laughs> been Fergal Keane's contribution to the understanding and empathy with the conflict here? But like Peter Taylor's in that he uh, does not accept the immediate, obvious propaganda that's put out by the media and digs deeper and further and uh, is not afraid to do that. Because I remember coming over here with you and sitting with you and Martin McGuinness, mm-hmm. Presbyterian clergyman. David Latimer. David Latimer. Yeah. Up at a, a meeting up on the walls in a church, or what yeah. used to be a church. It was a peace meeting. And, and I remember a real feeling of possibility oh, and yeah. hope. It yeah. would have been about ten years ago. Yeah, it is. And I don't feel that now. But that can happen again. The work has happened, has nevertheless happened, and will continue to bear fruit. You'll keep working? We'll keep working. And I'll keep going up to events and a uh, wet Monday night and uh, having have a to glass of wine. Good man. <laughs> <laughs> what about the peacemakers? They're almost forgotten. They are almost being written out of history. People like John Hume played an absolutely critical part in setting the language of peace. John Hume's dialogue with Gerry Adams. Which he was pilloried for, particularly in the South. And meeting, meeting yeah. the IRA. Yeah. All those things are forgotten. Blessed may be the peacemakers, but to the credit goes the gunmen. I really hope it's over. I really hope it's over. But I'm not sure it is when the fundamentals, the sectarian animosity that exists, that fatal fault line that runs through this society, is unaddressed. And it can't be addressed as long as you have politicians who are, figuratively speaking, at each other's throats, when they're not cooperating. And that is the great danger that has been deepened by Brexit and the, the, the recklessness with which that uh, project was launched Without Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for the people of Britain, but without paying proper heed to what it would mean here on the island of Ireland. People say to me, why are you still going to Northern Ireland? Why are you, isn't it, you know, the com- it's over, isn't it, Peter? Why are you going over? To which I say, and I agree with you, Fergal, you know, it isn't over. When will it be over? That's a question that I don't think either of us are in a position mm-hmm. to answer. But there is still a threat from dissident Republicans... They do have the wherewithal to create death and mayhem. And, and loyalist paramilitaries haven't 
gotten rid of their weapons. There's a huge amount of weaponry well, out there. The, the, <laughs> the weaponry, some of the weaponry that the so-called new IRA is using are the weapons which were supposed to have been decommissioned to make the Good Friday Agreement possible. So, you know, it ain't over till it's over, and it ain't over yet. I mean, look, things have happened in my lifetime here that I never thought I would see. McGuinness and Paisley no, the sitting together. Yeah. I never thought I would so say never it. So never say so never. So never say never. All things are possible. I just have this, I have this deep unease that we could be plunged back. We could be plunged back through a mixture of British carelessness and nationalist impetuosity, pushing too fast. If you get a breakdown in relation to Brexit... The capacity to drive tensions through the roof here remains very, very strong. Coney Island, place of refuge on many dates between 1985 and 1990. This is Coney Island. It's raining, which I don't remember, actually. (laughs) I don't remember rain. Uh, but of course it probably did rain 90% of the time when I used to come here as my refuge whenever it got too heavy in Belfast when you felt like the lid was about to blow off and getting into my car and coming down here and walking out here into this tiny little beach and you know if I look over to the right see the Mourne Mountains just loving the sound of the waves the smell of the, the sea air but also just a sense that across the water was Scotland I was standing here Further south was the Republic, and just a sense of continuity. We've got to get it into our heads that there's a space here in the North Atlantic to which we all belong, and whether you're living on the big island across there or on the smaller island here. We share so much in music, in culture, in our history, however fractured and divided that history is. But this island's division is marked by those beautiful mountains just over there. This is the north. This is the United Kingdom. The other side of those mountains is the Irish Republic, a totally separate independent state. And we stand here and we're so close and we are both part of it. I'm part of this bit and you are part of the bit beyond the Mole Mountains. You see, I think, I think we're part of it all. That's the journey. There is more that joins us than keeps us apart the physical position we're in at the moment shows the separation but also it shows the communality that we both share the Irishman and the Englishman or the Yorkshireman and at this point orchestral music swells and we skip off happily into the sunset (laughs) where's the sunset where's the sun Shared Troubles was a BBC Northern Ireland production produced by Conor Garrett. Until next time, thanks for listening.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.